Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for the Calvary Crunch. I appreciated that. If it was the Calvary sit-up, I would not have been able to do that. I'm just going to be honest right there. So I love that we kind of lower the bar to help me out in that. So thank you. We are in our last Sunday of this series. Not our last Sunday. This isn't it. No, no, no. Like, what's the pastor know? What are we preaching about this morning? Last Sunday. Okay. But in all reality, it could be. And are we excited about that? Paul lived with just an, uh, uh, an imminent view of Christ's return. He was ready. Even more than his own death, he looked to think that the return of Christ was going to happen before his death because it could happen at any time. So it could be last Sunday. If I would have known that, I would have prepped a little bit more. So it's the only thing I ask, Lord, just let me know. So I, you know, you, you want to end with a bang. We are in our last sermon series or the sermon of the series talking about denial. And we're not talking about denial that is outside of the church, atheism and, and people that are pushing back against us and, and our beliefs, but we're talking about denial in our walk. And if we're going to be really honest and transparent with ourselves and with maybe one another, we would say, hey, there are times that I walk in seasons of doubt and denial. Does Jesus really love me? Am I truly saved? Am I really fulfilling what Christ would want to see in my life? Sometimes we live in denial where our reality doesn't fit our worldview. And sometimes the easiest thing, and this is just me, this is a way of description, not prescription. My emotions love to lie to me. And there are times I know who I am in Christ, but I don't feel it. It doesn't feel that way. I don't feel loved. I don't feel that his presence is with me. I don't feel that, you know, the whole line, he'll never leave you or forsake you. There's times I feel left and forsaken. And if I'm left to those kind of emotions and I don't ground myself back in the truth and I start making decisions based on those emotions, I'm living life in denial. So regardless of your feelings, root your faith in the fact and in the truth of his word. So we are in Matthew chapter 22. We're picking up verse 34, reading to the end of the chapter. Um, through this kind of series, what we're seeing in the last couple chapters is and Jesus is having these conversations pretty much with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite that just want to throw him under the bus because they just want to kill him. There's no other reason, purpose behind it. We need to destroy him. He's making us look bad. He's got a following. We need to snuff this out quick, fast, and in a hurry. And they're grasping at straws. They're trying to do anything that they can. And the most fun is when they do it, and it's in a crowd of people. Because at one time he can condemn the Pharisees and then teach people at the same time. And isn't that just really good? So there's going to be a small part of you I'm going to try to condemn the snot out of as I teach the rest. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> like, wow, this is getting real serious. And so this is kind of that last questioning that you see. So verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So we've got a little second uh, holy huddle here. 
and one of them, a lawyer, of course, sorry if you're a lawyer. (laughs) So one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, without hesitation, like, you should know this. Everybody knows this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. See, you would have thought at the first, the the lawyer would have been like, well, very good, Jesus, that is right. And we'll talk about why he probably would think that. But Jesus continues on. He says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So before they could rebuttal and throw another question, he says, let me ask you, what do you think about the Christ? That's the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. So he's pretty much asking, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Duh, right? Everybody would know that. Verse 43, and Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, capital S right there, calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Nobody was able to answer him. A word. Now from that day, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? I love that. Shut you up, quit asking questions. I try to do that with the kids all the time, right? Four kids ranging from six to 16. I get about a thousand questions a day. Want to play Barbies? Want to go outside on trampoline? You want to do this? What about that? Let me ask you a question to shut you up so you quit asking. No. And so Jesus They holy huddle up, they come back to him, and they ask him a question, and Jesus flat out answers them. So what is the greatest commandment in the law? And this honestly was probably a question that the Pharisees and the religious elite passed around a lot and talked through. This was probably a, this was one of their top life group questions when they met together and we're going to discuss the law. Well, which one is the greatest? Because we do know that there were 613 commandments that were given in the Old Testament law. And when we say Old Testament law, uh, a lot of times we think this, you know, especially Leviticus, this is law book. But really, when the Jews talked about law, they considered it the first five books of the Old Testament. They called the Torah, we would say the Pentateuch, first five books written by Moses. And it's really not just lined out law, law, law. It really is still in the story format of what God is doing through the nation of Israel. And he didn't even give all 613 at once, right? And that's okay. This is good. Because, you know, we we see in Exodus 20, which we'll go to here in a minute, he gave a few. And he lets Israel live, sees how they break some of those laws. So he gives them more and and going on so forth and so forth. And we do that in our parenting, right? The day I brought my son home, I didn't sit him down in the little baby carrier and say, all right, kid, listen up. Here's all the rules that you need to follow in my house. No. No. He lived, we gave him a few rules, he grew up, we gave him a few more rules, he grew up, we gave him a few more rules, starts breaking the rules, we give him some more rules, punch him in the face, give him some more rules. (laughs) And so God is doing the same thing with Israel. 
And so when we read those first five books, it really is in that story format of, of, re of God reaching out to Israel and sharing these laws. And so the questioning that they give Jesus, what's the greatest? They're not questioning his knowledge of the law. <laughs> Don't do that. He knows the law. The law points to him. But the question, the trap that they're trying to throw is the judgment of his law. Should we really follow these laws or not? That's the questioning behind this. Kind of like we do even today with some of our laws. We know it's a law that I can't go above 70 on the highway, but my car just likes 74. And so my judgment of the law is you can go at least five over. What cop is really going to give you a ticket five over? Every one of them. And when we're like, oh, don't be a jerk about it, you're breaking the law. And so they're questioning his judgment of the law, not his knowledge of the law. Everybody in here feeling convicted because you speed. Dirty, rotten sinners, goodness gracious. So they're questioning his judgment of the law because here's the trap. If we can get out of the 613 commandments, if we can get him to overemphasize one law over something else, oh, well, we got him. How could you be lax on that law, Jesus? God gave us that law, even though them themselves, they themselves would probably be very lax in it. I think if Jesus would have said anything else and, and showed a lax in regard to one law, that would have been the new number one law to the Jews and the Pharisees. Oh, how could you not obey the speed limit, Jesus? Yes, that is the greatest law and commandment that God gave us as they still kill, murder, destroy, oppress people. And so there's the trap is that they're trying to attack his judgment of the law. And so just a little, uh, little, little Bible college here. We got to talk about the purpose of the law. And then that'll help us understand a little bit what's going on. So the purpose of the law then was to answer two questions for Israel. How can Israel approach and worship a holy God? So there's this vertical aspect of the law, Israel to God, God to Israel. How do we approach and worship a holy God? Now, so uh, normally the law, uh, you can hear it divided into kind of three categories. You had the civil, you had the ceremonial, and you had the moral law. And so God tells you, hey, this is how you worship me, Israel. It matters what you wear, it matters what you eat, it matters how you cut the animal up, it matters where you sprinkle its blood, it matters who's allowed into the butcher shop, it, all of that matters. So how can Israel approach and worship a holy God? And then how can he, how can an individual in, and how does Israel live, walk before a holy God? So it matters, their lifestyle matters. And some things I think God just wanted Israel to be really different and unique by the things that they weren't allowed to eat. Everybody else is eating bacon. We're not allowed to eat bacon. We are a depressed people. Everybody else gets shrimp. We get no shrimp. You're wrapping bacon around that shrimp. We are oppressed. No, we're different. We can't wear certain clothes mixed. We can't do certain things. Or we do this in a different way. We're obscure. We're this different, peculiar kind of people right? We were the oddballs. Remember those kids at the lunch table? If you don't, you were one of them. Join the club, I was too, right? We were the oddballs. So think about that. Israel was always supposed to be missional in their hearts to reach out to people. And Jesus did not use the quarterback, or God, sorry. God did not use the quarterback and the cheerleaders to reach the school. 
He used the geeks, the weirdos, the ones that, you know, stood out and were a little bit different. They were the ones that all the other nations were looking at me like, dude, bacon, really? It's like, hey, bacon is phenomenal. Big advocate, big advocate, but not over worshiping my God. And so I will live differently. I will restrict my life and I will do things differently because this is what God has called us to. And so now, why do we, so we're not under the law anymore, so we don't have to, we can eat all the bacon-wrapped shrimp we want, we can wear all the different thread of clothing we want, we are not under the Old Testament law anymore, just read Galatians and pretty much the whole New Testament, we are not under the law anymore, so why do we still have it though? I mean, that's taking up a lot of the Bible there, why don't we just rip those out, because it'd be easier to carry, why don't we have just a New Testament, why do we have the Old Testament? So the purpose of the law now for us is not regulation, we're not under the law, but it's for revelation, so that we can understand who God is. So the purpose of the law is revelation. God reveals himself to us through certain things. We know in the law, for an example, it says, take care of the poor. Well, what's that say about God? If he is commanding you to take care of the poor, he has a heart for the poor. And that reveals that God has grace and mercy to those that are being oppressed. And so for us now, it's a revelation of who God is. It's not a regulation. And it definitely, and it never was in the Old Testament, and it definitely isn't now for salvation. It was never meant to be that. The law can't save. The law can't save at all. The law doesn't bring righteousness. The law shows us where we step out of bounds. And this is where Israel, the Jewish leaders, get it mixed up. They think if we can perfectly follow the law, which they even take a step further to say, if we can perfectly follow the law under our interpretation of the law, we're holy and righteous. God is lucky to have us. Sometimes we do the same thing. We understand Christianity and we maybe put our own interpretations on it and we think, oh, because we adhere to these, God is lucky to have us because I come to church every Sunday and I'm in life group. And nah, God looks at the heart. He wants to know where our faith is placed, and it's always been by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Old Testament, the righteous man shall live by faith. It's always been about faith. You go back to Hebrews 11, he starts clear from Enoch, and he works all the way through the Old Testament. By faith, by faith, by, it's always been about faith. And so the purpose of the law was always meant to be understood relationally with God and with others. That's what the law uh, addressed. And so if you have your Bibles, go to Exodus 20. Go into the Ten Commandments. Because a lot of times we jump right into the Ten Commandments, and those actually start in like verse 3. But read the first two verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We sang about that. Kind of use that play on words that as God delivers Israel out of Egypt, he wants to deliver us out of our Egypt. So I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives the law. Why is that important? Because the law was always supposed to be understood in light of a redeeming relational God. Even the whole book of Deuteronomy was written, here we can geek out just for a hot second. It was written in a format that would have been very understood in the culture for Israel. 
And, and so when you had two nations and one would maybe conquer the other, or one would submit to one another, they would set up treaties with one another. We understand that even today. We have treaties with other nations. And this was called a suzerainty vassal treaty. So this king would say, hey, I will do this. And in response, you will live this way. And if you do, there will be blessing. And if you don't, there will be cursing. And so all of Deuteronomy is set up that way. God is saying, I am this king and I will redeem you out. And so these are the terms of agreement for our covenant relationship. And he gives the law. What we can't do is treat the law like we do when we sign up for our cell phone or Apple and you get the terms of agreement and you just scroll clear to the bottom, yes, I agree. Who really reads that, right? If you have that kind of time to read those, wow, hats off to you. And so sometimes we could even do that with scripture, but the law must be read, must be studied in the context of redemption. So why do we follow this God? Why don't we not eat this or do this? Or why do we live this way? Because he redeemed us and gave us value and a purpose to live for him. So Israel was in this covenant relationship with God and the law served as those terms of agreement. Because you did this, yes, we will serve you. The problem is Israel lost sight of that redemptive work of God and it caused them to lose sight of the purpose of the law. They weren't looking to say, how do I approach and worship a holy God? Or how do I walk and live before a holy God? in relation to my fellow man. They looked at the law and said, this will make me righteous. And they got inward focus with the law that it's all about me. There's a whole sermon right there. This whole thing, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about your desires, my desires. This whole thing is about God. And that's always been his design. That's always been his heart through it all. And so Jesus being asked, okay, what is the great commandment? He says, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bibles, go to Deuteronomy chapter six. He's quoting from Deuteronomy six at the start. And he says, I'm a nine, four, there we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is called the great Shema. Shema is the word that means remember, listen, heed. And this was a huge thing. This is why the lawyer would have been like, hey, very well, Jesus, you're right. The great Shema, that little verse right there, it was a prayer that the Israelites would use every morning and every evening in their prayer. That was like a centerpiece of their worship in their prayer time. So here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And just a little side note, read the next verse. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Cow kids cannot be the foundation of your child's faith. Kim should not be the leader of your child's faith. You as a parent, me as a parent, are the leaders in our child's faith. Well, that's easy for you to say. You went to Bible college. That has nothing to do with it. That God will absolutely equip and bless and will lead and guide you because they don't need a professor. They need a mom and they need a dad that's going to discipline them, that's going to love them, that's going to lead them and guide them in the word. 
It's always been his idea. Sorry, side note, where were we? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And they would all have been like, oh, yes, that is good. That's the center of our prayer. And then Jesus continues, and he reads Leviticus. So let's go to Leviticus 19. Just want you to see it in the original. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Come on, where are we at? 14, keep going. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Good thing we don't struggle with that, right? Amen. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus sums up the whole law in the prophets. And he says that in the next verse. On these two commandments, these two pillars, in a sense, hold up the whole Old Testament. If you had to boil it down, what is it all about? The whole law, vertical relationship with God. How do we love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind? And the next pillar, how do we love our neighbor as ourself? Not one pillar, both. And so he says the whole thing is dependent upon those two. So when we look at the law, and even I would say specifically all of scripture for us as Christians, not just Jews, this wasn't a rule book, but it was a storybook. It was a love book. Well, that sounds kind of weird, right? A love book. Imagine about that, like walking up, hey, pastor, you got more of them love books? They're like, what kind of weird church do you go to? They're handing out love books. That's what it's about. It's not a rule book, but a storybook, a love book where God is creating a new kind of people, fully able to love him and love others. And he's still in that business. Why? Because Jesus brought that story to completion. The very thing that God wanted clear back in the beginning, in the very Torah, the beginning of the Old Testament, he's still about that. He wants a people that are going to love him and love others. And here we are. It's called the church that God is creating in us to be a people that are going to love him and love our neighbor. That's why uh, in Matthew 5, if you remember from uh, just that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, That's, I haven't come to abolish the law. Why would I abolish the law? It's all about loving God and loving your neighbor. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've came to fulfill the law. That's the heart of our God, that he loves us he opens the opportunity for us to love him and that he gives us beyond our ability the ability to love one another because if it's without God I'm a mean old cuss ask my kids if I'm not being led by the Lord I'm a hard father I can be flat out mean at times I can be I can slay my kids and my wife with my tongue real quick. And I can say words that I wish I could take back. And there are so many times I have to walk up to them and say, that is unbecoming of what it means to be a godly husband and a godly father. I have to be spirit-led. I have to be grounded in what all of this is meant to be. And when I lose sight of that, when I think this is about anything else, it's not about Jesus. Even Paul would reiterate in his, uh, in Romans 13, he talks about the one who loves fulfills the law. 
The one who loves fulfills the law. And so as he answers them those questions, their question, he gives the answer to it. And before they can kind of gather up, he's going to ask them a question. Hey, while I got you here, and you've been asking a lot of questions, now it's my turn, to which I'd be shaking if the Son of God wanted to ask me a question. But he looks at him and he says, what do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they would absolutely know that. The Messiah is going to be the son of David. So we know David, you know, slingshot, Goliath, or Bathsheba, whatever, you know. Um, there's a few stories of David. And they, we, we know, we can go back to the Old Testament, we can see the promise, the Davidic covenant, that the line of the Messiah is going to come through David. Obviously started with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's going to run through David. And that's why the genealogies in Matthew 1, Luke 3 are important. You can follow that line. That the lineage of Jesus, of the Messiah, is going to come through son of David. So they know. Absolutely. Now the one thing is, they probably didn't know where Jesus was born. Usually not a top question I even ask people. You know, like, hi, I'm Nick. Oh, you're Bob. Okay, good. Where were you born? <laughs> What's your date of birth? What's your credit card number? You know, No. <laughs> So they probably didn't know that. And even if they did, most of the times in the Gospels, it's not saying that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I mean, it is say that. But they understood what they saw Jesus was from Nazareth. So they didn't have the concept that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They just saw Jesus from Nazareth. Because could anything good come from Nazareth? And so the idea that they wouldn't be looking at Jesus thinking he's the Messiah, number one, you're not even from this line of David. Nothing good comes from the city you were born in. And so he asked this question. He's like, okay, very good, son of David. Let's a little follow-up here. Don't you love those follow-up questions? Thought you got one right? No. How is it then that David in the spirit, so being spirit-filled, calls him Lord? And so he uh, quotes from Psalm 110, which is the number one quoted chapter in all of the New Testament, Psalm 110. Probably should read it. Not a bad homework assignment. If, if the New Testament writers were going to quote from that the most, maybe not a bad idea. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. So if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, turn to Psalm 110. We got we to see the answer is in there. And so when we go to Psalm 110 and we see Psalm of David, verse 1 right here, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, in the Greek, in Matthew 22, it's the same word for Lord twice. The Lord said to my Lord. He's quoting it, and there was only really one word for Lord in the Greek. But if you go back to the Hebrew, there's actually two words for Lord, two totally different words. And so when he says the Lord, and this is capital L-O-R-D, and we've talked about that, that is the proper name of God is how I call it. That's Yahweh. Remember, it was a breath thing. You can't even, you can't pronounce it with your lips or tongue. It's a breath. So Yahweh, Yahweh. Remember that sermon where we talked about the very breath that we have is saying the name of God? Kind of a cool thought right there. And then you see, and the Lord says to my Lord, and that's written kind of normal. So these are two different words. So you have Yahweh, and then the other Lord, you have Adon. That's where we get Adonai, right? That is a term for Lord that we have applied to God. But it's not 
always to him. Like Yahweh, if you say Yahweh, there's only one person you're talking about, and you're talking about God. But if you say Adon or Adonai, you could be talking about other people, right? So uh, that term is more for a master or an owner, an overseer's type. So in a case, like if you own your house and I walked into your house, it would be very normal for me to call you Lord. Lord Jeff of the Carson Manor. Your women shall bow to you. You can pay me later for that. You can pay me later. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> Out of the crowd of you, that was the only person I said I could probably get away with that joke. Thanks, bud. But that'd be normal. I mean, if, if, use Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Isaac could absolutely, and it would be right and respectful for Isaac to call his father, Abraham, Lord. Take note, son. What do you want me to call you? Dad, daddy? I'm liking Lord. I'm liking Lord right now. And, that, and so it was just that sign. And so in here, the Lord said to my Lord. So you have this master, owner, Lord, and then you have Yahweh, the self-existent, the eternal, proper name of God. And so listen to what Jesus is saying. The Messiah is the son of David. And David referred to him as Yahweh. This would have been huge to them. They only saw the Messiah to be just any other man appointed, anointed by God to be a political leader, but he was just human. But if you go back to the Old Testament, if you go back to Psalm 110, what Jesus is quoting from, we will see that David looks at him and he calls him Yahweh. And then the Messiah is human because he's from the son of David, but he's also God. He's revealing that the Messiah, 100% human, son of David. David was just like me and you, in the flesh, had kids. So, and they absolutely understood that, that the Messiah would be human. What they didn't understand is that the Messiah was also Yahweh, was also God. And so this big, massive loop that they were in denial about was how could there be a Messiah who is man and God at the same time? To which Jesus was probably standing there saying, I present to you myself. You know, like, that's me. That is Jesus. That's why we defend so hard the humanity of Jesus. He was 100% human and also the divinity of Jesus. He was absolutely 100% God. So the Jews were confused. They only saw two pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament, and they couldn't reconcile them together. On the one hand, you have this suffering servant. Why would he be killed? Like, how could that happen? But they also saw this reigning king. But we see the picture in Christ, specifically even in the same moment on the cross, that he was that suffering servant that died for the sins of the world. But in the same time, he was that reigning king, and he viewed the cross as his, like, throne, where he was, you know, when they'd have a king and they'd put the uh, coronation or whatever they would call that, where they perfectly exalt him, and that's what he viewed the cross as. And so Jesus is revealing to them about himself, saying, I'm, yes, I am the Messiah. Did you not remember just a few days ago when I rolled into town riding that donkey and palm branches and Hosanna, Hosanna, and I'm the Messiah. And let me show you further that I'm 100% man, duh, they would have absolutely understood that. But I'm also 100% God. Verse 
God. And nobody was able to answer him. I'm not asking him any more questions. Do you understand what he just said? And so they only saw the Messiah as humanly, divinely appointed, not a person that was 100% humanity and 100% divinity. Why does all that matter? Go back to Deuteronomy for me. Go back to Deuteronomy 6. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind. And when he was in Leviticus, he says, love your neighbors yourself. I am Yahweh is the verse. So when Jesus in Matthew 22 is asked, what is the greatest commandments? And he answers with those two verses. He's not revealing anything about the law. He's revealing to those what is the proper response to him. And it was the same response that Israel should have had with the law. How can we approach and worship Jesus, the Messiah, a holy God? How do we have this vertical relationship now in the person with the person of Jesus? Who is God? Who is Yahweh? And then how do we walk and live before Jesus? before a holy God, because he is the Messiah and I am in a covenant relationship with him because he went to the cross, rose from the grave. I've placed my faith and my trust. We are in a covenant relationship with him. Remember communion? This is a new covenant through his blood that changes my life. It changes how I worship him that I can't just come in willy-nilly any other way that I want to worship him. I can't walk in with a goat or any other animal. Like, you know what? We're going to sacrifice to Jesus today. Can't do it. Even though I have a small dog that it's tempting. <laughs> Lord, if you want sacrifices again, I got the number one for you. I'll put all my sin right on them. <laughs> Sometimes I take it out. No. Jesus who is God. He's the one that defines what it worship means. How do we approach Jesus? He's the one that defines that. And he's the one that defines how we interact with one another. That's why we need to forgive. That's why we need to love not just our neighbors, but love our enemies. That's why we need to show kindness. So when the world looks at us as these peculiar people, not by what we eat and by what we wear, but how we interact with one another just like they did Jesus. Jesus, why are you hanging out with those sinners and those tax collectors? They should be looking, the world should be looking at the church and saying, why are you hanging out with the very people that live with values completely different than yours? What they're really asking is, hey, tell me about Jesus. But because of him and what he has done, that changes how we respond to him because he is Yahweh. He is God. And so Jesus, as the Messiah, he's revealing that proper response in how we live. And he sums it all up in one word, love. Now let's define that. It's not love, you know, where your heel pops and your stomach turns with butterflies when you see, you know, that guy or that girl. You know, it's not something that you can, oh, we fell out of love. And no, no, no. Because again, we don't get to define that. We don't get to make up what we think love is. Even though the world has, the world defines what love is. 
And not just in a sexual context, but even what it means to love your friends where you can't call them out, you can't address issues that you, you have to be completely tolerant and accepting. That's not love. That's not love at all whatsoever. If I was standing out in the middle of 42 and there was a, a Mack truck getting ready to bear down on me and just blow me into smithereens, I can't correct them because I just want to love them. So I'm just going to sit here and watch him blow up into pieces as this truck hits him at 78 miles an hour because he's not following the speed limit. <laughs> if you truly loved me, you would say, hey, bald idiot, get out of the road. But our world says you can't do that. If it's right for me just to walk down 42, that's right for me. And if it's not right for you, that's perfectly fine. But there's nothing right or wrong, just whatever you feel and you can do. That's their definition of love. Or a biblical, a real biblical, God-honoring love never, never compromises what God says is right and true. It's not my idea of how we define marriage. It's not my idea of how we define gender. It's not my idea of even what we define love. It's God's, it's Jesus. And if I truly love him with all my heart, soul, and mind, I will never compromise on what he says. And if I truly love him, I will never compromise on my love for one another. This is huge. Because if there is love for Jesus, there will be servants and obedience. John 13, John 14 talks about that. If you love me, you will love your neighbor. You will love one another. And they, they will know that you're my disciples by your love. And if you love me, says in John 14, you will keep my commandments. A love for God does not compromise on the law of Christ that we have on our lives. It changes how I live my life. The moment that me and my wife, and she was my fiance at the time, surrendered, submitted our life to Christ, our lives absolutely changed. Not just theologically, practically. Changed things because we were living together. And it changed our lifestyle. And we restricted certain areas of our life because we wanted to honor Christ with our life. And the same thing. There are areas in our life that we need to restrict that we don't do because we want to honor Christ with our life. And there's things that we should do that maybe I really don't want to do, but I'm supposed to honor Christ with my life. And so if we have a right relationship with Jesus, we will have no problems with his commandments. They're not burdensome. They're not heavy. His burden, his yoke is easy. His yoke is light. If we have a right relationship with him, we'll have no problems with his commandments because we view them in the light of his redemption. Because he went to the cross for my sin. Here's my life, Lord. What do you want from me? I'll do it. Say yes. And so when we view scripture, we view the things that he calls us to live and to do and our behavior and our actions, we have to view it from the lens of redemption, just like Israel thousands of years ago but they lost sight of it. They thought it was more about trying to keep the letter of the law and doing the right things. It wasn't about being led by God. And again, he won't lead you outside of his word. He's not gonna call or command you to do something that is against his word. It'll always be in a line with it because love is the basis for our obedience. 
That's a better biblical word. So when we say we're going to love Jesus with all our heart, soul, and mind, we're going to obey him. We're going to be committed to him. And when we're going to love our neighbor, I'm going to obey my neighbor. I'm going to serve. I'm going to surrender. It's going to be self-sacrificing. It's not about me. Then I'm going to lift others up even over my own desires. Because a love that compromises truth, it's not love. And it doesn't make sense to me. Why is the church, do we need to look at the world and try to lower the bar of what is right and wrong? Where we see sin and we don't want to call it out, why in the world would we not? Because if we say, no, 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 that sinful behavior, actually it's not sinful. We'll take a softer approach to it. We just limited the opportunity for grace. If we look at people who are living in sin, now, yes, there's still a, uh, a way to address it with truth and love. But if we address their lives and we don't call out sin, if we don't encourage a godly, holy lifestyle, and we say, oh, it's perfectly fine, when is grace ever going to work in their life? Grace works in my brokenness, in my fallenness. Grace works when I don't get it right. Grace works when I'm too mean to my kid. If I'm too sharp-tongued towards my wife and I say something that is unbecoming, there's grace not just in me. There's grace in my boy. And the most humbling thing you can say to your kid, will you forgive me? But what I don't need is to look at him and say, I did nothing wrong. Or for him to look at me and say, I did nothing wrong. Because then there's not an opportunity for forgiveness. There's not an opportunity for grace with one another. And so we cannot compromise truth because that's simply not love. And you take it to the fullest, we end up working against the whole plan of God. We end up working against the cross, the completed work of Jesus. I was listening in on the uh, Tuesday morning Bible study that Beth does upstairs. So ladies, if you're able to be a part of that, uh, feel free to talk to Beth and get involved with it. And I heard a question and it kind of made me chuckle a little bit. Sorry, I was eavesdropping. They just don't invite me, so I got to find a way to get involved in it, right? <laughs> Goodness. It's a select, top-notch group, let me tell you. And the question was, how do I speak truth and love into someone's life when I'm living in sin myself? And I thought, welcome to my profession that every Sunday I got to get up and we got to talk about the truth of his word and what he is calling us to. And here's the biggest, uh, if you haven't realized yet, I'm the chief sinner in the group. That those words aren't just to convict you. Those words convict me. Those words call me, realign me back to the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And thank the Lord that there is that. And it's not just a letter of the law that if I can't keep, I'm done. Yes, he calls me to a holy, righteous lifestyle. But when I fail, and you're gonna ask my kids and my wife, that happens a few times. There's grace. And so when Jesus is looking at these Pharisees, and he's telling them, I'm the Messiah. I'm Yahweh. Love me, and let that love for me 
flow out to love one another. That's the great commandment that's on our lives. So, Father, we love you. We trust you. Even when we don't understand what you're doing and how you're working in and through our lives, even when we don't understand your scandalous grace, because I know the depth of my brokenness and I know the depth of my sin. But you continue to move and work in my life and you keep inviting me back to your table. You keep inviting me back into your work and to walk with you. I pray each and every one of us would respond to that kind of invite, Lord, knowing that your hand is always extended to us to love you and to love others. And I pray that we would not compromise your word, we would not compromise your truth, and we would do it with a sense of gentleness and care and with kindness and with patience, Lord. Because we were shown that same kindness that led us to repentance. So, Lord, we, again, surrender and submit our lives to you. Lead and guide us that we would be able to love you, love others. And maybe we as this little church in the Lake of the Ozarks would make an impact into this world for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said?